This webcast is for informational purposes only. The content provided does not constitute medical advice or diagnosis, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The opinions and information provided during the webcast are for informational and discussion purposes only. We do not warrant or guarantee the accuracy, completeness, adequacy, or currency of the content provided. This webcast is not a substitute for professional psychological or medical treatment, advice, assistance, or services. Should you or a family member need help with any of the matters discussed during the program, please contact a competent, licensed professional for assistance. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. Do you or a family member or maybe a friend have to conduct certain rituals over and over again. Perhaps they've already been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, or maybe you're just suspicious that they may be suffering with this disorder. Today we're going to be discussing obsessive compulsive disorder with John Hirschfield. What is it? What's the most effective treatment? How do I manage the roller coaster existence of living with and loving someone who has OCD? These are very difficult issues for families, especially if the person with this disorder is a young child or a teenager, or the whole issue is complicated with the person having another problem, such as a physical illness or substance abuse. I'm going to tell you a little bit about John Hirschfield's impressive experience of working with clients who have OCD and with their families. However, one of the most impressive facts about John is that he has actually lived this life. John himself was diagnosed with OCD at age 14. He grew up hearing about other family members who also had OCD. John has experienced the impact of this on himself and his family, and so he truly understands the challenges of living with and loving someone with this disorder. John is a psychotherapist. He's a founder of the OCD and Anxiety Center of Greater Baltimore, which is a private practice. Previous to entering full-time private practice, John was associate director of the UCLA Pediatric OCD Intensive Outpatient Program at the Resnick Neuropsychiatric Hospital. He is co-author of the Mindfulness Workbook for OCD, A Guide to Overcoming Obsessions and Compulsions, and author of When a Family Member Has OCD. In addition to his clinical work, he is a professional contributor to multiple online OCD support groups and blogs regularly about OCD and its treatment. John, welcome to Caught Between Generations. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. So, John, what actually is OCD? So OCD is a uh, mental health issue. It's, uh, I believe, the fourth most commonly diagnosed psychiatric issue. Um, it's characterized by obsessions, which are unwanted intrusive thoughts, and compulsions, which are um, ritualized or repeated behaviors that are designed to neutralize or otherwise uh, you know, shut down discomfort associated with those unwanted intrusive thoughts with the obsessions. And then we have this word disorder, which really means out of order, um, meaning if, if this loop of obsessing and compulsing is actually impairing your functioning, interfering in your ability to, to work, to have relationships, taking up more than an hour of your day, you know, then we would call it a disorder. I mean, obsessions and compulsions in and of themselves are not necessarily problematic. We all have unwanted thoughts. We all do little rituals to kind of make our lives more, conven- uh, more convenient. Um, but when it becomes uh, a matter of impairing functioning, we call it a disorder. 
So in a nutshell. You know, I found it very interesting when I, I read your book because I must admit, even as a therapist, that I always thought about obsessive compulsive disorder at, and as expressed in certain ways. And in your book, you really talk about OCD in a lot of different spheres that actually I had never considered, such as religious, you know, intimacy, relationships, occupational. I, it was really an eye-opener to, to read that material in your book. Good, good. Yeah, I think that's one of the most common misconceptions about OCD is, I mean, it's nobody's fault exactly. I mean, that's what we see on television that's the easiest to portray would be things like hand-washing and checking. Uh, but the... Um, Disorder, uh, the community that suffers from this disorder, the, there are so many more symptoms that make up OCD besides the overt physical rituals you might witness. So the impact of OCD, what is the impact that you see on families of a person who's diagnosed with OCD? Well, one of the things that, uh, one of the best ways to understand OCD in the family is to understand that the family functions as a system, and OCD takes a lot of energy out of that system. So a common construct might be that uh, an OCD sufferer is uncertain about something, they're afraid of something, they're unwanted intrusive thought maybe about uh, getting sick or being dirty or, uh, like you mentioned, something uh, related to their religion or their sexuality. They may reach out to a family member for reassurance, uh, something along the lines of, you know, uh, uh, I, I didn't wash my hands after I touched that. Do you think that's okay? And the family member will say, oh, don't, don't worry about it. It's fine. And then they get relief. And then what happens when the disorder starts to really kick in is the sufferer starts to really depend on that family member for reassurance. They start to really believe that they can't function with, without that uh, reassurance, that they can't function with uncertainty. And it gradually gets worse and worse and worse. And then the family member who's on the accommodating side of things, who's trying to soothe this person and reassure them and help them with their rituals, finds themselves being more and more called upon, more and more drained by this um, constant need for reassurance, for certainty, for accommodation. This creates a lot of hostility and contempt and just sort of family burnout. And uh, I, I see a lot of families, uh, I've seen a lot of families that you would, you would call them OCD families in the sense that there's really maybe only one person with OCD, but everything that goes on in that family has to do with that person's OCD, whether it's, um, you know, getting that person treatment and all the trips to the psychiatric, uh, psychiatrist's office, or um, whether it's dealing with accommodation and, and demands from the disorder at home, uh, whether it's infighting, let's say, between parents over how to navigate having a child with OCD. And so the whole system becomes immersed in the disorder. How does it impact the person themselves? Because I think sometimes there this perception of the person is maybe anxious or struggling, but, you know, it's not really as hard for them as it is for the people around them. It's There's, there's no easy way to measure how, how intense suffering is. But one thing that's worth understanding about OCD is that the person with OCD is doing, is engaging in behaviors that they don't want to engage in. They feel that they have to engage in. And even when they see that it's, you know, maddening their family members and it's destroying their relationships and it's keeping them from functioning at work, they still find themselves doing these behaviors. So you have to ask yourself, how much would I have to suffer to do something that I hate more than anything that I would like to stop doing and yet still believe that it has to be done? 
And, and so people with OCD, that, you know, if you don't share that obsession, you might say, well, don't worry about it. You know, if you're secretly gay, you're secretly gay, who cares? Or something like that. You might just dismiss it. Uh, but internally, the process is much more severe. The level of anxiety, uh, the best way to sort of have any sense of what it might feel like would be to ask yourself how you might feel uh, standing at the edge of, uh, of a tall building and, uh, and, and looking down if you have a slight fear of heights, you know, or uh, holding a snake or something like that. And just imagine carrying that sense that something is about to go terribly wrong if I don't do something right now and carry that feeling with you all day and sometimes into your dreams, you know, and to really to look forward to sleeping in the hopes that you'll get a break from this constant repetitive demand to fix the problem, fix the problem, fix the problem, whether the problem is that you're dirty or that you're going to get sick or that you're going to um, uh, offend God or whatever your obsessive flavor might be. It's a pretty relentless disorder. And if you read blogs or visit discussion boards or really talk to someone who suffered with the disorder, it can be pretty shocking how intensely they feel uh, uh, trapped and enslaved by it. Uh, and, you know, actually listening to you, First of all, it sounds exhausting. Yes. And second of all, I, I'm really impressed with, I, I don't know how, given the situation you're describing, how someone could actually go to school and really focus or go to work um, and really do what's expected of them. I, I, I mean, it just seems overwhelming to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to uh, speak in terms of statistics without having it in front of me, but I believe it's in the top 10 uh, most debilitating disorders, according to the World Health Organization. And um, I've treated people on the more severe end of things who've, you know, abandoned their homes because they felt that they couldn't get it uh, decontaminated enough. Um, uh, certainly people who've uh, lost their jobs or relationships because they just couldn't, they couldn't function. All of their attention was given to getting certainty about their fear. So I've got to ask you just a little reality TV question, you know, because <laughs> it's always hanging out there. So is hoarding a form of uh, OCD? Hoarding is not a form of OCD. Hoarding is um, a symptom. Hoarding is two things. Hoarding is its own disorder. Uh, most hoarders don't have OCD, although many do. Um, but many people with OCD also have hoarding as a symptom. So we wouldn't necessarily say that they have hoarding disorder, but there's um, some of the characteristics of OCD blend into some of the characteristics of hoarding. So this idea that I, I can't be certain that I'll ever be able to relax unless I know that I've kept this object and it's there for me to go back and check. That's a very OC way of looking at hoarding. Uh, and if that's the rationale behind the hoarding, it might fall more into the OCD category. Uh, but a lot of hoarding really isn't like that. A lot of hoarding has, has other... Um, uh, psychological processes to it that I'm less familiar with. But it's its own disorder. It's it's not the same thing as OCD. It was once believed to be so, um, but now we understand it to be different. Okay. All right. So you've described this very, very well. well I mean, is there a treatment or treatments uh, that are available to help people who are suffering with this? Absolutely. Um, one of the most interesting things about OCD is how treatable it is. Um it's a chronic disorder, meaning it's, you know, if you have it, if you're predisposed to it, you, you, you should really anticipate that you're going to be dealing with it in one form or another long term. But unlike every other chronic disorder I can think of, if you keep 
doing the work, it's actually something that gets better over time. You develop more and more mastery over your symptoms. So it's not something where it's like, oh, I have this and it's just going to get worse and worse until I die. It's actually the opposite. If I, if I do the work, I can expect more and more relief and, um, and, and there's really no thing that you shouldn't be able to do work, have relationships, et cetera, et cetera, um, with, with OCD if it's well treated. Uh, the gold standard for treatment of OCD is cognitive behavioral therapy. And, um, uh, more, more recently we we're recognizing that including mindfulness and mindfulness based practices alongside the cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, makes it even more effective. So cognitive behavioral therapy in short would be on the cognitive side, uh, addressing, uh, distorted ways of thinking about your experience that compel you to do your compulsions. Right. So if you're thinking in very black and white terms or if you're catastrophizing and, and you're aware of this, you can then challenge that way of thinking and say, well, you know what? Washing my hands right now is a choice as opposed to something I have to do. Mm-hmm. The behavioral therapy side of things is uh, uses a, uh, an intervention called exposure with response prevention. And ERP for short, it basically means gradually confronting the feelings or thoughts or circumstances that you're afraid of putting you in that place where you really uh, want to do compulsions and then practicing the ritual prevention, practicing not doing compulsions. And eventually your brain has to recalculate the, the, the association between those two things. So if I'm trying to find someone who can help me with this, how do I find a therapist? How do I know that they can specialize or do specialize, let's say in cognitive behavioral therapy? It's a good question. It's actually a, a serious problem. We have, we have a high demand for um, people who are trained in behavioral therapy and a relatively, comparatively speaking, low supply of people who are trained uh, in that manner. The International OCD Foundation has a treatment provider list, so you could go in and put in you know, your zip code and how far you're willing to travel and see if anybody from that list is on there. But even within that list, you'd still want to call them and ask them some questions. And actually, the IOCDF has a, has a page on what questions you'd ask them. You'd want to know how much of your practice is made up of treating OCD, how long have you been treating OCD, do you use exposure and response prevention, um, you know, what is your attitude about medication, and, and, and things like that, really to get a sense of you know, how well does this person know OCD. Because just having some idea about CBT or maybe having some experience with anxiety, it's probably not enough to adequately treat the disorder. It has has a lot of very unique characteristics that require mm-hmm. some specialization. Okay, that's very, very helpful. Let, let's talk for a minute about special situations in OCD. So, for example, having a child with OCD, um, I think might be difficult in terms of discipline. You know, what am I going to discipline? What am I not going to discipline? What's part of the disorder? What's not part of the disorder? I think as a parent, I might find that very confusing. Yes, that's pretty much all I can say to that. So that's what, <laughs> I, I agree. I, you know, it's parents of children with OCD have to do a lot of a lot of work. Uh, they have to get educated about the disorder so that they can. They don't have to be experts necessarily, but they have to have some expertise so that exactly what you said, they can really distinguish between, you know, is this a situation where I need to discipline my child because, you know, they need that structure um, and, and they're behaving in a way that's, that's not acceptable in this family. Uh, or do I have to recognize this as an OCD symptom and, you know, address it somewhat different, differently, um, approach, approach it with compassion and understanding that they're struggling. And at the core of that is, 
being able to identify the behavior as the problem, not the kid, right? You know, you're bad, you're annoying, you're being peculiar. Uh, that kind of criticism and hostility actually just makes OCD worse. It, it positions children to sort of defend their rituals rather than let go of them. But if you're able to approach it more from the perspective of, I see you're struggling. Uh, I can't claim to really understand what it's like because I'm not in your head, but I know that this behavior you're engaging in is causing you a lot of problems. It's also causing us a lot of problems. You know, we can't get to school on time and things like that because of the checking, for example. Can we work together? Can we collaborate on a way to just address this problem? And you keep the focus on that, on the behavior, and not on whether or not you have a good kid or a broken kid or a sick kid or any of that stuff. So in as they get older, we now have raging hormones, all right, in adolescence, all right. Are there any particular suggestions or things you think people ought to be aware of with teenagers with OCD? So early onset OCD for, I, I, I believe, just off the top of my head, for, for boys it's usually age 6 to 8, and for girls it's a little bit older, 10 to 12. Uh, but there's, we also tend to see a spike in symptoms around adolescence for the reason you just gave. Uh, I think what you could certainly expect is that the content may suddenly become more severe because this is a disorder of the mind, and you know when you're five years old, you're not thinking so much about sexual orientation or, um, uh, or, or, or violence, which is not to say that I haven't seen kids with these types of obsessions, but you're going to see more of them in, in teens. You're going to see a lot more socially constructed fears. Um, uh, what, if, uh, what if people think this or that about me? Or um, you know, what if I have a bad thought about my teacher or a bad thought about a student or something like that? Um, so it might be pretty jarring for parents to suddenly see their kid talking about some intrusive sexual thought that disgusts him. And, you know, he's not maybe not able to share it either. And, you know, teenagers tend to be, um, you know, they don't leap at the opportunity to talk about themselves as having a mental illness. So sometimes it may take a while for them to even open up to their parents about what the problem really is. And if you have a parent who doesn't know anything about OCD, that could go very badly indeed. You know, a kid might say something like, I have these unwanted intrusive thoughts about, um, you know, I don't know, stabbing someone or something like that. And you might have a parent who says, well, you know, what is that? What's wrong with you? And gets very angry and, and starts worrying about the kid being uh, psychopathic. I mean, that's really not the issue at all. It's just, it's just OCD. And if the parent could, could know that, um, they'd be able to help them cope without becoming a part of the ritual. What about the opposite? What if the, it is the parent? who has OCD. What are the issues there? It's, it's not very well understood or, or talked about. I mean, when, when I wrote, when a family member has OCD, that was right from the beginning, it was one of those things. I was like, I, I want to have something in there about a parent having OCD. Because, you know, though I've seen it in my clinical practice, um, you know, mostly it's talked about from the perspective of being a parent with OCD, but we don't talk a lot about how that affects the children who may not have OCD, who are looking up and seeing, you know, dad uh, repeating some behavior or um, becoming, unexp- you know, inexplicably upset. You know, that, that's really what the kids are seeing is like, you know, dad suddenly got angry and I don't know why. Uh, well, you know, dad got angry because, you know, he thinks he may have touched something that touched something that might have uh, had a contaminant on it that could have given him cancer. The kid's not going to be able to process that. Um, 
So the, the same rules apply if the, if the child is in some way able to be educated or if there's another parent uh, or, or, or a family member who can help educate the child and say, you know, you know your, your, your dad's mind or your mom's mind, you know, works kind of this way, kind of that way. Um, you know, they're not angry at you. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything to cause this. And especially if the parent is in treatment, you know, that, that can be looked at as a good thing. You know, daddy's working on it. He's getting better. We need to support him, that sort of thing. So one of the other things we talked about um, before we started the podcast was comorbidity, which means you have one one disorder and then you have another disorder, um, not necessarily secondary, but it's also there. Um, and it was interesting to me because I was really talking about dementia and physical illness such as cancer or diabetes, and what you said to me was not what I expected. In the comorbidity disorders you were talking about, you were talking about that you see more frequently is um, ADHD and depression. Is, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Um, and and sometimes you see you know bipolar, or sometimes you see that the OCD um, is being driven by uh, social anxiety, which might be driven by uh, being on the autism spectrum. So there's a lot of interplay between the disorders. I mean, this is one of the challenges that we still have on the psychiatric on the psychiatric front, which is, um, do we really know that SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, work for OCD? We, we know that some people who take them sometimes find some relief from their obsessions and from their discomfort. Does that mean that OCD is caused by a problem with serotonin? Well, we're not really sure because it seems to also affect other areas of the brain and other neurochemicals. And um, it, it can be very difficult to lock it down. That being said, most of the people that I see just have OCD. They don't have co-occurring disorders, um, but many of them do. Uh, depression is probably the one, I, this, the one I see the most, most commonly. So in talking about family systems uh, with a grandchild who has, let's say, OCD or an adult child, is there any advice you would want to give, for instance, to grandparents who are trying to be supportive to a family? Well, I, the, the first thing is you have to think, think about compassion. You, know, you, you can't just reach in and fix someone. You can't reach in and say, okay, you're, you're broken, I'm going to fix you, here's what you have to do. You have to start from the perspective of, you know, I, I see that you're suffering, you know, I, have, I know what suffering is. Um, and, you know, is, is there a way that we can work together uh, to maybe address this problem, maybe get you some help? And to always approach it like it's, um, it's just any other challenge. We, we tend to put mental illness in this, you know, completely different category. Um, you know, you, you uh, twist your ankle and you go to the doctor and they fix it up for you, but uh, something goes wrong in your mind or in your brain, you're expected to just you know, do the equivalent of walk it off, which is really unfair. So whether you're talking about a parent or a grandparent or, or just a friend, I think to, to always approach it not from the perspective of you're sick and I need to fix your sickness, but from the perspective of, I see that you're suffering. It causes me pain to see your suffering. Let's, let's work together on alleviating the suffering. John, I think that's very wise advice for many, many issues, um, just not OCD. So I thank you very, very much for being with us today. Um, do you want to tell us how to get in touch with you and your, and your book titles and anything else you want to add? Sure, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, 
So I am uh, probably most easily accessible through my website, which is ocdbaltimore.com. And you saw, you'll see on there I have uh, several blogs that I've written about different aspects of OCD. Um, and my contact information is on there as well, my email, my phone number. Uh, Book-wise, uh, out now we have um, a book I co-wrote called The Mindfulness Workbook for OCD. So this is a uh, treatment manual style self-help book. Um, and just this past December, when a family member has OCD, which we touched on, uh, came out and starting to get a lot of positive feedback back from that. It's always very funny when you write these books because you don't get a lot of feedback. You know, you have your publisher and maybe, you know, a couple of friends read it and you keep your fingers crossed. And it's not until it hits the public that you get a sense of whether or not you struck a chord. Um, uh, but, but that book in particular seems to be uh, connecting with a lot of people. So I'm excited about that. And I recently found out that I'm starting a third book project uh, with a friend of mine named Shala Nicely, who's a therapist in Georgia, an OCD specialist. And we don't have an exact title yet. It's going to be something along the lines of living joyfully with, o- with OCD. And the point of the book is that it's going to be a sort of long-term management guide. So rather than, um, you know, here's what it is and here's how you get treatment, it's more about here's how you actually live with this this thing. Here are some tips and tools and metaphors and strategies for actually uh, having a fulfilling and, and value-based life with the disorder. We'll look forward to reading this. Um, your other book was certainly very, very helpful. Um, and as a therapist, I, f- I think it's a very good book. Uh, and I would highly recommend that families with someone who has OCD read it, um, because I think there's a lot in there that really sp- speaks to people and speaks to what their issues are and what their problems are with very, very good suggestions on what to do and what not to do. So I thank you very much for your great work. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks, John. Have a great day. Take care. Whether it is in my work with seniors at Sarah Care or my earlier work with children and their families, the biggest problem that I've seen through the years is denial. I saw this problem in my own family when my mother suffered a very dense stroke. I think denial stems from many issues. It's a general attitude towards problems in life that, uh, if I don't have to face it right now and eventually the problem will go away. Or it's a feeling of shame or feelings of failure. In situations like my mother facing the results of her stroke, It was heartbreaking as I tried to come to terms with the fact that the mother I knew and loved would never be the same. One of my own children was diagnosed with a severe learning disability. Although he has been very successful as an adult, his life as a child was not what I had imagined it would be for either him or for me. Change is hard, so in the midst of dealing with this denial, ask yourself some questions. Is there help and treatment for this condition that we're not receiving because I am denying the existence of this problem? Is this denial causing more harm than good for my loved one? Is living in denial actually taking twice the energy needed in order to maintain this denial? And do you really believe that other people do not know or have some inkling about what is going on? Look, we don't intend harm for anyone for whom we care for and love, but sometimes our denial of a problem actually results in harm to others and to ourselves. Is it really worth the effort to be working so hard to maintain the image that everything is fine? 
This is Dr. Merrill, and I'm asking you to take the time to really think through why you are denying a problem when you know what is actually going on. It's not going to go away. In the end, it's harder on you, and I want you to take care of you. Write to me at Dr. Merrill at caught between generations dot com.